Hello, and welcome to Criticism is Dead, a weekly culture podcast about what we're watching and what it all means, if it means anything at all. I'm Pelin Keskin Liu, a producer and writer. I'm Jenny Jijong, a culture writer and critic. And this week, we have a special guest with us. You you probably know her, you love her, we've, we've had her on the pod before. She is one of our favorite critics out there right now, Alison Herman. It is such an honor to be here again. Thank you for spending your Friday afternoon with us, uh, despite all the technical shite that's been coming down the pipeline for us. Um, I appreciate you. Thank you. Oh, yeah. thank you. There's there's no better way I love to spend my time than talking about television. So Alison is with us to chat all things top five TV in the middle of the year. This is funny because usually we do an end of year thing, but... Because there's been so much TV coming out, uh, we actually have enough content to do a mini top five uh, in the middle of the year. So Alison already did one. You did like a top 10, right? Uh, with some of your Ringer co-workers. Upon that, we decided to invite you on to chat. What your favorite has been, you know, a nice little media check-in. How do you feel about this, just with the amount of stuff that's been coming out? You know, I feel about as good as I can until we started sharing um, our top fives in advance, not to like offer a peek behind the curtain. And then in like true... <laughs> no, pull it back. Pull, pull it In back. true TV in 2022 fashion, I was like looking at your guys' list and was like, oh my God, there are multiple shows on here where I have not seen a single second. And they are, you know, yeah. notable enough yeah. that they're on a top five. So I'm as behind the eight ball as anyone uh, has to be when they're covering it's the totally speed. Fine. Totally it's fine. totally fine. There's I feel so like you're stuff. a normal human being if you have not seen, you know, all of it. Um, yeah. It's just, it's like, it's your job and you still haven't seen everything, which kind of goes to show how much there is out there um but we've got something for everybody so i'm yeah. pretty excited to get into it and the only criteria uh, really is that like these are things we liked in this the first yeah. half of this year so you know no exactly no yeah exactly. well and i love to learn about new things that i haven't seen because then it it can add to the crushing guilt i have of not having seen it and possibly will motivate oh, yeah, me to yeah, watch yeah. it <laughs> We all could do with more crushing guilt in these times. Yeah, not enough to go around. <laughs> yeah, so just to give you guys uh, some kind of semblance of understanding what our systems are, we did a top five and we did rank them. For so each person. Gonna be, yep, each person has their own top five and we're going to be comparing and contrasting. Some of our stuff is going to be in each other's lists and we'll just skip ahead and talk about it. Um, but I want to start off with your number five spot, Alison. What do you have going on? Okay, well, as Pellin mentioned, um, I co-authored a top 10 uh, a few weeks ago with my colleague Miles Surrey, which is available on The Ringer. So um, you can find these picks scattered across there already. But I decided to start with uh, Tokyo Vice which is a show um, where the pilot was directed by Michael Mann. Yes, the legend. Yes, the legend. We stand. We stand man. <laughs> but it is about a white journalist played by Ansel Elgort, named and based after the real life uh, Jake Adelstein, who moves to Tokyo in the late 1990s, um, becomes the only white or gaijin reporter for a Tokyo-based newspaper, and um, basically becomes a crime beat reporter uh, investigating the Yakuza and uh, partners up with a 
um, police detective played by Ken Watanabe. And yeah. I picked this because... This is, on, um, this is on HBO Max, is that right? Yes. That is correct. Yeah. Okay. Not regular HBO, HBO Max. Uh, Just the Max, <laughs> yeah. But... I did not engage with this show um, as a critic while I was watching it, which is just a huge luxury that probably makes me um, have an outsized affection for it, where I just watched yeah. it in real time over, you know, a month and a half. And yep. it really um, surprised me in a couple ways. I mean, it's not surprising that Michael Mann can, like, completely immerse you in a world like um, the underworld of turn-of-the-century Tokyo. And... It's not a surprise that, you know, the pilot is great, but I will say I will not and cannot vouch for him as a human being, but I honestly really liked um, Ansel Elgort in the lead role. And I also thought the show did a really good job engaging with the idea of like a white person in a majority in an almost entirely non-white country and like what that means. Um, I think Ansel himself has this kind of like strange stiffness and passivity that like does not work at all when he's supposed to be a romantic lead in a musical but works perfectly when he's supposed to be this (laughs) intense monastic man protagonist and i think the show is really interesting in how it first of all makes him and rachel keller who are the two major um white actors part of like a true ensemble like i didn't really feel Mm -hmm. like the show was necessarily privileging their perspective it more like Mm -hmm. engages with what it means to be an expat at this very particular time where it's like a lot more meaningful to be like a white person living in Tokyo in 1999 as opposed to you know 2017 or whatever. Yeah. Um yeah. but yeah, I just really enjoyed um being steeped in this world. Um I felt like I could like reach out and touch everything. Um the man directed sequence in the pilot where he's taking like an SAT like entrance exam to work for a newspaper yeah. was like <laughs> Wow, this is so good. It's not how journalism works over here, but um, I love watching it. (laughs) No, I I agree with you completely. I think the thing that you said about Ansel Elgort is very true. He's because he, I've always, like, he hasn't quite hit it off for me in terms of his performances because I've always felt like there's something kind of awkward about the guy, but it worked out perfectly for this. They also show, show all of this on location too, which really, I mean, Tokyo. Come on, like, you're already transported. I want to give a special shout out to Shokazumatsu, who plays Sato, who I think is one of the hottest TV stars to come out in recent times. An absolute star-making performance, just to have him on screen. I think he's, like, super, super charismatic. So, yeah. Awesome. That's your number five, Alison. Um, Jenny, what about you? What's your number five? My number five is a, a little bit of a wild card as we see it, uh, which is the series on Amazon Prime that we talked about on a previous episode of this podcast. Basically follows the set of roommates slash friends who are all on the spectrum and the various family and friends and loved ones in their lives uh, just as they go about trying to navigate life and relationships and difficult situations and gaining independence and learning what it means to just continue to live life. Um, but yeah, this was originally a suggestion by Pellin. Um, I think when we first talked about this and yeah, it just ended up being one of those shows, like a quiet kind of show that I think not many people watched, but somehow emotionally, 
just really stuck with me uh, months mm-hmm. after we talked about it. Um, so yeah, it's a really touching, moving kind of thing that I think really shows a lot of the humanity of just like life. Yeah, and and I think what it does as well is that it does a decent job of the carers too, like those that care for someone with autism on the spectrum. It's just it, it seems to have a lot of empathy for both, and I think that's just something that I really appreciated because of like my experience with my brother as well so i i really like that too i think there's a good way of having humanity for both ends of it and the struggle for both ends of it um for someone that's neurotypical and someone that does have autism so and this was jason katem's verse right yes yes Yes. and it's based on an israeli series Um, yeah but yeah yeah, pretty good watch uh now pelin what's your number five pick so my number five is winning time Literally because I had such a good time watching it every week and stylistically it's just really fucking different from anything else on TV uh, mm-hmm. that I'd seen in a minute. And I know that it's based on a true story. That's something that I think that was why I was like hedging a little bit as to why I should put it on because I'm a original story girl. Um, I don't really like too many adaptations or anything, but I don't know, man. I, th- I thought they went all out for this and I think they landed it. Um, especially for this first season, so I don't know. I I, I like this kind of storytelling. What, what do you? How do you feel about Winning Time, Allison? I know that you've written about it. Before. Yeah, I was pretty mixed on it. Like there are things that I think are undeniably just like so infectious and fun. Um, particularly yeah. some of the actors that they found. Quincy Isaiah mm-hmm. is just like mm, just amazing. I mean, it, it's yeah. so impossible to be like find someone who realistically looks like a young Magic Johnson and can act like it and sells yeah. that charisma. Yeah. And they yeah. totally nailed that yeah. assignment. And can play basketball. Yes. Or like can pretend like they, I will say I have no expertise. And my, my friend Haley O'Shaughnessy, who like co-hosts a basketball podcast, when I got screeners was like, how's the basketball? And I was like, you know, you know that I cannot answer that question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But I think some of it's great, but like tonally, um, I thought it was kind of a mixed bag and stylistically, which totally makes sense for Adam McKay. And then, um, yeah. As an adaptation, as someone who made sure to read the entire Jeff Perlman book it was based on before I watched mm. it, because I was oh, like, wow. well, I mean, I work for a sports website, so I was like, it is, yeah, it is yeah, very yeah, important yeah, yeah. that I, I mean, don't make, was gonna, I don't make yeah. a total idiot of myself here. Um, but they make this really interesting choice where the Showtime era of the Lakers was the entire 1980s and the entire season is just one season of basketball like yeah um they don't play a regular season game until like season five and so that means like you have all these big picture themes like the flash forward in the cold open is to the 90s when magic johnson get his gets his diagnosis and Mm -hmm. um you know they they play up larry bird and the celtics but then it's like they play up the celtics as this big rival and they don't even play them yeah. Um, yeah. in the finals. And it's a very interesting, like, I compared it in my review to The Crown because I'm like, it's kind of like The mm-hmm. Crown where you're like, we're doing 60 years, baby. Like, if you're ordering this show, you're getting yeah. six seasons. And I was watching this yeah. and I was like, if they want to do 
justice to this era. Like it's going to be at least three or four seasons. And then there's a whole, um, Jeff Perlman wrote another book about the kind of Shaq Kobe era in the two thousands and they could do that too. And that's like, that would, you know, it would be like a 10 season show if they ended up doing that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious about how they do move through time. I think your crown comparison is, is very exact. And then you've got something like Mad Men, which moves across time pretty flex, like it's quite flexible. Um, and it's over the span of 10 years too. So I'm curious about how they're going to do it for season two for sure. Um, cause I think there is a season two. Yes. And my uh, hunch probably. is that know- knowing history, like they kind of have to have one season with the Jason Siegel character at the helm and then yeah. they have to decide to put adrian brody the pat riley at the helm Mm -hmm. and like looking at that i'm like i don't think like the jason siegel season really makes sense to stretch out to a whole season so maybe now that they've kind of set the pace they're going to go at like a faster clip but it it was definitely like a um really interesting adaptive choice that i think had some pluses and some minuses yeah for sure all right now for our number fours uh allison what's yours my number four is the righteous gemstones um i wanted to have at least one slot where i honored like a pure comedy um i know some there will be at least one other i considered our flag means death but i ultimately went with gemstones because um it is the most insane production value um (laughs) that i have ever seen on like a straight comedy um i think it probably has some of the best action filmmaking on tv the only other competitors Mm. i can think of are like house of the dragon when it finally shows up in a warrior like um and it's old words yeah i mean it's something that like i think based on the premise i maybe expected to be a little more like social commentary and satire and there's like a little bit of that but it's mostly just like Mm. incredibly funny people being as funny as they've always been, but also just getting the resources to do like motorcycle chases and big <laughs> showy like mega church sermons and wrestling scenes and the God Squad. And like, mm-hmm. there are just so many set pieces that I think really like amplify the humor instead of like, you know, distracting from it. Um, yeah. That I really think it's worth sh- shouting out Danny McBride and David Gordon Green and Jody Hill and everyone who's involved because this really does feel like something they've been like working toward as they've been like slowly, you know, going up through like Eastbound and yeah, yeah, Yeah. vice principals. So I just want to highlight like a like comedy done really well and b like how, you know, comedy doesn't have to mean you're not ambitious. Like it's so ambitious. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I totally love it. Um, I actually like, I watched both of the seasons. I, I sort of marathoned them all earlier this year. So it kind of totally slipped my mind as something that came out this year, the second season. But mm-hmm. yeah, love it. I think it's one of uh, the the most fun things on HBO right now. I'm a Danny McBride super fan, so I approve of this thing <laughs> 100%. And I, I agree about the whole like just putting money in it. There's something very just about righteous gemstones, there's something very American about the whole thing. So you've got to go balls out. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. you have to do the maximalism, which is just exactly fits this whole theme. Um, perfect. What's your number four, Jenny? So my number four is one that I know that we all have on our lists in various, you know, different positions. So I picked mm-hmm. Barry, uh, which was out this year uh, for its third season. So everyone probably is familiar with this series by Alec Berg, Bill Hader. Uh, it's just, it's not, I know there's always, a, there's a big debate, of course, like, is Barry still a comedy? Um, if it's not funny, but I, it's still funny. It's just 
funny plus a lot more darkness you know mm-hmm. success- progressively as we inch deeper into like the core of the depravity more or less and the hollowness yeah. of certain people uh but yeah i thought this was a fantastic season even if you know people are asking whether or not it's comedy yeah it's my number three and allison i think it's your number two right yes i believe so yep yes yeah i mean listen the second i watched the first like the second i watched the pilot of barry i knew that i was gonna love it there's just something about bill Hader and the way he navigates comedy and like whatever it is that he's trying to say and how mindful he is about the way things are shot i can't help but stand forever like he's just he's just exactly my kind of humor and <laughs> whatever it is that he's trying to say about commentary whether like for example with this about fame about opportunity and also about like redemption um and if it's possible especially for someone like Barry um there's just there's something very honest and frank about it which i just love that that was like it, it emotionally carried me uh but there were some fantastic episodes too mm-hmm. was there an episode in this season that you thought stood out Alison? oh man um i think a scene if not necessarily an episode that jumps out is where um barry bill Hader's character shows up to gene cousinow uh, henry winkler's character's house in episode yeah. two yeah. and says you know i love you um right after he's threatened to like kill his children mm-hmm. um yeah and yeah. <laughs> yeah i think that episode the beignet episode the main which is also the motorcycle chase episode <laughs> got a lot yeah. of attention yep. but i think this season in particular i mean barry's just been mm-hmm. excellent since it started mm-hmm. but this season mm-hmm. you know starts from a really tough place for the show where it's kind of abandoned the acting class that's always kind of like been the linchpin that yeah. brings the sides of the show together and then yeah yeah, like, it becomes a lot more dramatic because I think it's, like, followed the story to its natural conclusion. But I think the thing I, yeah. I like the most about it is there have been all these mm-hmm. anti-hero shows that have examined the question of redemption and forgiveness, but the way Barry is kind of, like, the supervillain of his own story is not something I think yeah. I've seen before, where, like, I yeah. I was, like, terrified of him as a character and was, like, very yeah. happy when he got caught at the end. Which I think is what the show wants. I think the show doesn't really want you to like wonder if he can be redeemed. It's just like, well, no, he yeah. can't mm-hmm. be, and now you have to kind of protect these other characters from him. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. It's still really funny. I think it's more like the kind of like ratio flipped, mm-hmm. where you're like, yeah, these are all clearly like incredibly funny people, but they have just understood that like you can only follow a hitman for so long until things get really dark. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, Pellen, what is your number four pick? So my number four pick is Standing Up on Netflix, which is the show about the stand-up scene in Paris, France. Uh, did you get... We talked about this on our podcast, but did you ever get around to watching this? No, and I am just like instinctively so suspicious of stand-up comedy in France. I'm just so curious how this how this like manages to not be awful. <laughs> <laughs> it honestly same um i i think i was a little bit wondering how cringe it would get and i think maybe the reason why it's like on my list is because it wasn't and i just want to reward it for not being cringe uh beyond belief it does a really really great job of making me feel like people that do stand up are not all terrible um so <laughs> shout out to them um the actual reason why i started watching this is because the creator of call my agent fanny herrero 
this is her latest show because Call, Call My Agent is famously done slash maybe coming back. We're not sure. But she created this show about that burgeoning stand-up scene in in France uh in Paris because it isn't as bad as it is in like New York <laughs> like there's no real uh stalwart UCB scene out in <laughs> out in Paris which is probably good what's great about this is it's an ensemble cast it really much like Call My Agent doesn't take itself too seriously but it's just like really really good writing and storytelling and character work I really enjoyed it when we talked about it. Jenny, I think you liked it too. But Yeah, I'm, yeah. A, I'm a big fan. Um, could have been maybe my number five as well. But yeah, it does a really great job of showing this like nascent scene. And um, the characters are, it, it does the interesting thing of like taking the point of view of several people of color, uh, especially in people of a lot of stand up in France is like rooted in the comedy work of, uh, you know, immigrant or people of color comedians. So it does a good job of showing like different lives and perspectives of different sets of like those kind of people, like not all of them the same. Some of them are dicks. Some of them are struggling. Some of them are uh, on the rise up. So yeah, it's like a really nice sort of slice of life uh, show. Yeah. And it does a decent job of not like ham-fisting certain themes like motherhood and fame and like how those two work as well as class like there's two characters that come from two different classes and two different races that are trying to figure out romance together um and honestly in terms of like on-screen chemistry i think they're one of the few that i've seen this year that actually like so far anyway that have actually pulled it off but I think it's a sleeper. I think I genuinely think this is like one of the best things that Netflix has come out with this year. Um, mm-hmm. And shout out to that. Yeah, my um, my next question was going to be like, how similar is it to Call My Agent? So knowing that Fanny Herrera was also involved uh, immediately raises my expectations. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She's uh, like, I think I said it when we recorded. She's one of my favorite showrunners out. Like just consistently bangers after bangers. Um, yeah, she's so, so talented. Um, yeah uh cool so now we're we're gonna move on to number threes uh allison what's your number three pick my number three is pachinko on apple tv plus um i think as an adaptation which you were talking about earlier i thought it was so impressive where it takes this um multi-generational novel by min jin lee and i think really um manages to like retrofit it for television it it's show run by sue hugh who also did the first season of the terror which is awesome and it does this really smart thing where it um splits the story into two parallel timelines um instead of just telling it all as one continuous narrative and then it also does this thing it feels so silly to talk about the use of subtitles but it's it's such a like small choice that really Mm -hmm. stands in for how like thoughtful the whole thing is where um it shows um it's about korean characters who then um emigrate to japan and face a lot of prejudice and marginalization there and in the modern timeline uh the character who's more fully assimilated the grandson of the other protagonist um you know speaks to his family in korean but will kind of scatter in japanese words and it color codes the subtitles so you can tell mm-hmm. you know what he's doing or like in the older timeline you can tell um you know, the Japanese characters will say terrible things about the Korean characters that they're mm-hmm. helping to um, colonize. Uh, the Korean characters will talk about the Japanese characters. And it just really subtly, um, I think, 
quote unquote caters to an English speaking audience, but in the best way where it is specifically trying to like make it more clear what the Mm -hmm. dynamics are. Mm -hmm. And it's like catering to them by like not catering to them. Like it's a show that's entirely subtitled, but like it makes sure you understand um, what it means that these characters are saying these words in this way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I really enjoy, I ended up because we started talking about it when we hadn't quite completed the season and I finished the season. It's very like I think my qualms with Pachinko were that even though like I think it's a very brave choice the way that they did that dual timeline because the book is so linear. I think the main thing for me was how melodramatic it was just ultimately in the TV show. The book, I, from my memory of it, was a little bit like, not necessarily darker, but it was a little bit more honest, I guess is a word that I'm looking for, or a little bit more like, not as embellished, I guess, as, as it was with the TV show. Mm-hmm. How did you, did you end up finishing Pachinko, Jenny? Yeah, I mean, it was one of those shows where, although I had a lot of, maybe, qualms with it um i definitely wanted to see it through i would still watch you know the future seasons of it as well i think yeah. it's really gorgeous but yeah a similar thing with pelin um just as like a, a super fan of the book i i did feel like there was a touch to um sort of operatic melodramatic uh sort of striving that it was going for a little bit more in the high octane sort of sentimental value which i get for a tv show totally um and i thought a lot of it was really beautiful to to watch and to just mm-hmm. sort of gaze at, but yeah, felt just fell a little bit short for me on some of the emotional registers. But I think totally a very like high budget, very carefully made TV show. So yeah. I can definitely appreciate for all the things it was trying to do uh, and all the things it will continue to try to do. Yeah. All right. So uh, I've done my number three. What's your number three, Jenny? So my number three is Outer Range, uh, which is on Amazon Prime. It's the sci-fi, like, neo-Western series that has uh, Josh Brolin in it. So we did talk about this in an earlier episode, and I think this is another show that has, like, some flaws, um, but ultimately I was just, like, really won over by its ambition and its weirdness. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know the last time I... I saw a show like this that sort of overlapped so many genres, tried to do so many strange, unknowable things, and maybe didn't always have a good answer for, you know, why they did this or why they did that. But I really appreciated the heights that it was at least attempting to to reach um, in its very sort of experimental, existential way. Yeah. Did you get around to watching this? I did not watch this. Oh man! I, I mean, I'm it. very intrigued by um, Josh Brolin being freed from his purple grimace makeup. So, <laughs> yeah, it, it, again, it's not anything I had like any knock against. It was just like there were only so many hours in a day. But I have a lot of friends who really liked it, so this is increasing my my interest in it. Um, if there was a six spot, Outer Range would be number six, and I actually did toggle between Winning Time and this. Listen, mystery box thrillers in general are my fucking jam. I'm a lost head, you know? Like, this is extremely <laughs> my shit. Like, sci-fi, um, Josh Brolin, I'm in, you know? And I just really appreciated how they delivered. And I appreciated how quirky it was as well. Like, it doesn't take itself too seriously, mm-hmm. even though it is ostensibly, like, extremely, like, filmmaky type of TV show. Like, it looks fantastic. 
this is a show about time travel. So I'm in, you know, <laughs> um, I love the season of TV. I'm really excited for season two as well. Okay. And Pellin, uh, your number three was Barry. That's right. It was Barry. Yeah. Just, just to, yeah, just to clarify that. All right. Yeah. So now we're going to move on to number two. Allison, what's your uh, second pick? My second pick is Barry. So we've really, oh, yeah. we've covered okay. our bases there. <laughs> I'll take the opportunity to just add one more line of Barry Price, which is that oh, yeah, Sarah Goldberg it. is incredible. Incredible. Yeah. I think she is so, so f- like, the way she is capable of switching from the, like, high comedy of trying to tell Barry to kill her former agent to, like, the high drama of almost dying and abandoning him. Yeah. Her character is, like, so despicable, but also so relatable and also yeah. so comic. Um, it was just a great performance, yeah. so I just wanted to spotlight that. Definitely. Sweet. What's your number two, hun? So my n- number two pick is Throw Horses on Apple TV+. Plus. This is another one mm. of those kind of, I think, uh, sleeper hits, or I don't even know if you could qualify it as a hit yet, but it is a spy thriller TV series based on a novel by McCarran. Um, just like a very fun show. Especially if you're into the genre, um, Pellin is the one who introduced it to me for this podcast, and I ended up really, really loving it. Yeah, I'm the resident John Lacare fan, so anything spy related, I did love this show a lot. And the only reason why it isn't on my list, straight up, is because I'm so used to this type of British TV storytelling that I find it like. It's like it's what I've come to expect from above average British TV storytelling. So to me, this is like nothing new. That's fair. That's um, fair. Just because, listen, us on that island over there, all the island gals over there on that TV side of stuff, we know what we're fucking doing when it comes to thrillers. All right, whether it's detective, spy, any of that shit, this we do this shit in our sleep. It's not often that you see Gary Oldman on TV like this um, as a massive slob, <laughs> uh, which I appreciate as a fellow slob um did you ever get around to watching slow horses allison again i did not i mean i wow i think the idea of stretching out like a lake hurry movie to like series length kind of set off my alarm bells is like uh, i would be a little suspicious of the pacing um i'm not mm-hmm. the biggest fan of gary oldman but i literally put an ansel Elgort show on this list so that's not really <laughs> yeah. like keeping me Listen, if we get into the whole abuser track shit <laughs> like- yeah i think it's mostly um especially with apple i find like apple shows really have to hit a certain threshold because it's so easy for them to just be like stuck in the black hole like yeah it's truly amazing we're go- we're gonna be talking about severance but like it truly is like severance and ted lasso are the only two shows i've ever seen anyone who isn't like paid to talk about this <laughs> talk about yeah, yeah. so yeah. with something like slow horses like any apple show i'm like if it's not like inherently interesting to me and i don't see other people talk about it it just kind of gets shunted to the back burner but i do mm-hmm. know people who really like this show including you guys so yeah yeah it's a fun yeah. time like it is actually the pacing is actually pretty high octane i think it's only six episodes so that it helps like not drag. okay but yeah huge huge selling point thank (laughs) you all right um pellin what is your number two my number two is abba elementary oh yeah uh this is my comedy you know barry notwithstanding this is my comedy pick this is just it's had so much praise you know i first saw quinta brunson in that vine of her talking about he's got money and just seeing her come up with this is incredible. I'm 
stupidly projecting pride onto her mm-hmm. um but i am very proud that she's where she's yeah. at um, i i used to watch all of her like um buzzfeed era videos like her and all the other yeah, buzzfeed dude. folks so yeah amazing yeah. but i think it's amazing it's amazing and i also the reason why, i think the reason why i like this show is because it is just like standard cable tv mm-hmm. uh format which is not that it's like a lost art necessarily but we don't watch tv like that anymore like the majority of the tv show that tv shows that we watch aren't like this and i just appreciate that there is something there with like ad breaks and like i just have a great time i think the entire cast is amazing i love them all dearly they're just very very in like an endearing bunch um how do you feel about abbott elementary Oh, I really like it. I put it on our own uh, top 10 list that we ran on The Ringer. Um, I think the supporting cast, like, I think the Quinta thing is so cool because she lets herself be the straight woman. It kind of reminds me how, like, Donald Glover in Atlanta kind of lets himself be the most muted. And she surrounds herself with Cheryl Lee Ralph and Janelle James and these, like, big, funny presences. Um, I do tend to get, like, a little bit defensive in the discourse about the show Mm. where, like, you know, I'm like, just because this is the only network sitcom you've watched doesn't mean that they haven't been great for, you know, true. consistently. <laughs> you know, true. we have we have American Auto and Superstore from Justin Spitzer. No, we have, you know, yep. the whole like blackish wave of family sitcoms. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think there have been really strong network, network sitcoms, but it's also just been really cool to see this like blow up in a really yeah. meaningful way and, you know, get recognition at the Emmys. Um, and it's yeah. really like... I hope it kind of stays away from the Parks and Rec trap of getting too mm-hmm. saccharine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think it does a really smart job of like letting the kids be funny, but not laughing at them because they're kids. Totally. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like being very pragmatic about how messed up, you know, underfunded public schools are yeah. mm-hmm. while also being a comedy. Um, I think yeah. it's like subtly really tricky tonally and it really yeah. does a good job. It nails it. It totally nails it. I mean, it's yeah. very interesting that it has reached a sort of like a critical mass overlap between broad audiences and like the kind of more uh, media or critic circles, which I think I'd in part attribute that to Quinta Brunson's like status of just being like beloved among media people uh for a long time but yeah yeah, it it is the rare show i think that has achieved both of those in in one very swift motion uh just the rise of it has been kind of wild to see yeah totally um all right so we're down to the number ones Mm, mm -hmm. Uh, jenny and i share a number one but let's hear your number one first ellison all right, my number one is The Dropout on Hulu, a.k.a. Okay. The Elizabeth Holmes Show, starring yeah. Amanda Seyfried, show yeah. created by Liz Merriweather of The New Girl. Yep. I think this show is maybe graded on a curve for me because it is surrounded by so many shows that try to do the same thing it did, but worse. Um, whether that means tech founder shows like We Crashed or... Um, super pumped uh whether that means scammer shows like inventing anna whether that means um specifically elizabeth holmes projects like documentaries and um various podcasts i thought this show managed to do something none of them did which made which is make elizabeth holmes feel like a real character Mm -hmm. do social commentary without seeing seeming pedantic do humor without losing sight of the seriousness of the situation Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. make her feel like an actual person with wants and needs and quirks without 
just making her um, an extreme unknowable personality or, or excusing what she did. Yeah. I thought it was so clearly hard to do what it did because again, like you can just see like worse versions of it surrounding it. And it's <laughs> so elevated yeah. by the tone, by um, a performance from Amanda Seyfried that is literally terrifying yeah. Um, yeah. with all the dance scenes, uh, <laughs> the supporting performances from people like Alan Ruck and Sam Waterston. And um, I was just like, so taken aback by um, how powerfully I was situated in the story and, you know, everything from, like, her relationship with her parents to her experience with sexual assault to her, like, early relationship with Sunny Balwani, which is such a weird, yeah. unknowable thing from the outside. But then when yeah. you watch it happen, you're like, I, I get how this happened and I yeah. get how weird and intense it is. Yeah. yeah, I was just, like, really stunned by the degree of difficulty and the way it actually managed to feel like a pretty definitive statement about, you know, the tech era that we are yeah. leaving. Yeah. Yeah, I wrote a feature about tech TV for The Ringer that made me kind of like think a lot oh, about what yeah. these shows are saying mm-hmm. and what they want to do. Yeah, Thank you. But yeah. um, I, you know, I the piece is less like a, a comparative piece, but it was really clear to me when I was watching all three of the shows, like yeah. all three of them had moments and things that were notable about them, but it was just like head and shoulders above the rest. So yeah. I... Yeah really wanted to commend that and yeah, that's yeah. why i gave him my number one yeah and, and now we can agree. be done with with all these tech uh recent tech scam adaptations yes it's over now we still have the crypto shit coming down the pipeline i feel like i agree with you completely allison i think this is definitely a case of like the cream rises to the top shout out to the walgreens boys but i agree with you i recently watched mean girls and i watched first reformed uh two amanda Seyfried performances that i love she deserves that emmy if she ever wins it do you know what i mean like I th- oh she's gonna win it i don't I think there's does. any discussion of who else yeah. is going to get that prize yeah yeah she she deserves it completely it's just it's excellent all the way down to like her like the primal scream that she lets out in the season at the at the last episode of the season is so fucking good it ends perfectly that's the other yeah. thing is like it's so hard to Obviously, it's not a multi-season show, but, like, the ending scene is perfect, and I feel like that never happens. Yes, agree. Um, Sweet. Finally, mine and Jenny's number one yes. is Severance. Yes. Um, It's interesting. I've, I've noticed in a lot of people's top ten lists, it is there, but it's not really at number one, which blows my fucking mind, because as far as I'm concerned... It's the best TV show that we've had in recent memory. It's something that I think is a perfect season of TV. There are points in the season where there are maybe some episodes that people feel a little bit bored by. I get that, but I, I'm i a faithful, loyal person. And as long as the premise is interesting, um, I will stick by it. I, I think like no show has like gripped me as much as this has in, in recent yeah. memory, including other shows like other very like thrilling shows like yellow jackets or others that sort of like meet out this information um over a a slow burn period of time but i'm like really curious um allison what are your thoughts on severance Mm -hmm. since pellin and i have talked at length about how much we like severance on on multiple episodes of our podcast so uh what is your view in general 
to defend myself as someone who did put it on my top 10 list, but not number one, um, I thought, I think the pilot is like one of the best pilots I have seen this year, possibly ever. Um, I think it immerses you so quickly. You get the sense of the world. I think it is a perfect marriage of Ben Stiller as a director, Dan Erickson as a writer, and the incredible cast they have. Um, I think two things that maybe affected my overall impression of it were one, I binged it because I was writing mm, a review as, yeah. as opposed to, as opposed to week to week. Yeah. And I think it, it kind of suffered. Like I do think it kind of like buckled in the middle a little bit because I was just kind of like yeah. powering through and I, it was really cool to watch everyone like experiencing it in real time and like really, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it, it's so rare that like any show, let alone an Apple show, like does that. Mm-hmm. And it was, really awesome but then so first of all i binged it and then also i think i just assumed because of the nature of who was involved that it was a limited series Uh, oh yeah yeah (laughs) and i had that thing happen where i didn't even look it up it was literally i was watching and around episode four episode five i was like i know there are nine episodes in a season and i know i can tell they're not going to tell us every like there's no way they're they're landing this plane and i started to kind of notice like how much they were like meeting out the reveals and Mm -hmm. really placing it and um that's not to say like it totally ruined my enjoyment of the show at all i thought it was great um but i do think it was maybe strongest at the beginning and the end and the Mm -hmm. middle was a little slow and then um again it's like they're putting so much off and they're putting so much pressure that i'm just really nervous it's going to do that mystery box thing of you know kicking the can down the road a little too much Mm -hmm. um you know not using reveals to tell the story when they could uh it it totally gets the benefit of the doubt now it was on my list um i think the entire cast especially brit lauer yeah uh is so arresting it's also just so cool that christopher walken is just like a tv guy now (laughs) it's the best but those were kind of my my asterisk that that put it a little lower than number one that's fair i think that's fair like people um i think do question a lot of the nowadays like especially like when we see this information that is coming out at a slow drip and by the end of the first season you're like okay so we have zero things answered and you're telling me there how long i have to wait for the next thing to come out but you know i appreciate it as something that's playing for the long game um i'm i'm just like fully in for the ride at this point yeah i mean for me i think it had to slow down a little bit in the middle and do a little bit of like just plant some seeds it was a very seed planting middle for me the issue has always been i like it when a tv show doesn't give a fuck about answering questions and i and i love it when it actually withholds information and i think the trick is how do you withhold it um do you withhold it in a frustrating way or do you do it in a way that feels like you just have to have a little bit of patience and I think with Severance, it, it, it was number two. Like it was in that second box. Um, and that's why I just, to- I just trusted like with Dan Erickson's writing, which was obviously like from the get go, like you said, you understand that you're just, you're in someone's like pretty intelligent mind, pretty intelligent writer's room. Uh, you kind of get that immediately. I just trusted that we'd be fine. And that season finale, I've never done coke in my life. I feel like that's the closest I've ever, <laughs> I'm ever going to get. Because I was just raring to go by the end of it. Um, and I just, that that will never leave me, you know? And, and I think that's kind of why it's my number one. Anyway. Cool. So those are our that's us. top five. Yeah, that's, that's top five done. Yeah. Mid-year check-in. Yeah. Are there any TV shows in the second half of the year that, or like that you're watching right now that you think are like, could potentially be contenders for a top 10 end of year? 
Oh, I mean the rehearsal, duh. <laughs> like I, I think the rehearsal is the one, the one to beat. Like yeah. I, yeah. I am kind of mixed on Nathan Fe- or I was kind of mixed on Nathan for you. I'm not a huge mm. cringe comedy head. Um, this was like just took me took my breath away. Yeah. Um, I will, I won't get too into detail because it can definitely be spoiled. But I thought it was just extraordinary. All right, so thank you so much for coming on today, Allison. Is there anything? you want to plug like any particular pieces you've written of course we'll link to them any projects anything else you or twitter anything that you want to sort of uh give a shout out to at this end here uh you know we've been talking about some like very serious quality television (laughs) and as a palate cleanser i will recommend the interview i did with uh nikki glazer the host of f boy island she's such a great host Yes, I think she's really like the secret sauce of why that show um, works. And so yeah. it was really fun to talk to her. And she was really um, unfiltered in talking about uh, the contestants and like how the competition works behind the scenes and her feelings. And um, it was really fun. So I'll just recommend that. Okay, Sweet. amazing. We will definitely link that as well as other articles you've been talking about uh, in our show notes or, or subsec in various things. So yeah, well, that that's it for us, I guess. Thank you so much again, Allison. Uh, it was great talking to you. And for oh my god, of course, yeah. thank you. Um, and for anyone else who's listening to this, if you have your own top five lists, uh, personally, feel free to let us know. Uh, just like you know, chat it up with us. Uh, we're at criticismisdead at gmail dot com, and you can also just find us on Twitter and Instagram. Criticism is dead. Feel free to message us wherever. Uh, send us recommendations, uh, etc. And otherwise, check out our Substack, criticismisdead.substack.com for sh- extra show notes and links and summaries and whatever tweets we can find around the web. Um, yeah, thank you so much, everyone. Rate, review, and see you next week. Bye. Criticism is Dead is produced by Pelinkeskin Lu and Jenny Jijong. Our music is by Rika. Our artwork and design are by Sarah Macias and Andrew Lu.